This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Hello, I'm Megan O'Rourke, Slate's culture critic. Joining me today for our audio book club are Troy Patterson, Slate's TV critic. Hello, Hi. Troy. Hello. And Katie Royfe, NYU professor and culture critic herself. Hello, Katie. Hi. Hi. Today we are discussing Rivka Galchin's Atmospheric Disturbances, a first novel that we were all just saying is a very satisfying object to have and hold. It sort of has nice thick pages. But first, a word from our sponsor, which is audible.com, the leading provider of spoken word entertainment on the web. We have a special offer. If you go to www.audiblepodcast.com slash slate, you can sign up for a two-week trial and get a free audiobook. And if you cancel your subscription within that period, you can keep the book. How generous. The book uh, we're about to discuss, Atmospheric Disturbances, is available at Audible. Once again, that URL is www.audiblepodcast.com slash slate. It's the story of a psychiatrist named Leo Liebenstein, who wakes up one day to find that his wife, Rima, has been replaced by a simulacrum, who resembles her in almost all ways, has the same corn silk blonde hair, but is different in very key ways that Leo is attuned to and, and enumerates throughout the book. He sets off to find her on a rather picaresque journey, which brings him both to Buenos Aires and to Patagonia. And along the way encounters a number of interesting characters, one of them a former patient named Harvey. And just to get us started talking about the book, the book is at once kind of postmodern and tricksy and playful, and it seems to have a lot of the tools of the postmodern playbook. You you know, it seems to use a lot of those tools. But at the same time, uh, when you read, say, the Amazon reviews, a lot of people describe it as sort of earnest and sweet at the same time. And what did you make of that? What did you make of the book? I like this book very much. I, I put it on uh, Slate's uh, year-end best books list as uh, my favorite first novel of last year. One of the reasons that the book is so good is because of that, that quality of warmth to it. I think it achieves a nice balance between being a kind of postmodern quest novel that's very clever and in sort of giving you a sense for the, the heart and the sort of the uh, destabilized head of the character, Leo, and one of the reasons the book is so powerful and so eerie is that you feel like there's no there's no sort of ground level here, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So we begin in the first paragraph. Leo says that his wife, his uh, younger wife, is from Argentina. Rima comes home, and you can tell it's not her. It's like a simulacrum. Maybe we should actually even read that paragraph to just give give everyone a flavor because there's something very distinctive about the prose too. Do yeah. you want to read that, Troy? For I'll us, read that. That'd be great. Last December, a woman entered my apartment who looked exactly like my wife. This woman casually closed the door behind her. In an oversized pale blue purse, Rima's purse, she was carrying a russet puppy. I did not know the puppy. And the real Rima, she doesn't greet dogs on the sidewalk. She doesn't like dogs at all. 
The hay feverishly fresh scent of Rima's shampoo was filling the air, and through that brashness I squinted at this woman and at that small dog, acknowledging to myself only that something was extraordinarily wrong. So, yeah, Leo would seem to be suffering from uh, a kind of delusional misidentification syndrome. If I'm pronouncing it correctly, it's, it's called Capgris or Capgris syndrome. So, Could you look that up? Is that actually because he doesn't? Does he mention that in the book? He mentions, um, he mentions misidentification, misidentification syndrome in uh-huh. the book. Uh-huh. Um, it's stuck in my head um, when uh, reading about this book when it came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody pointed out that this is also uh, a theme picked up by uh, Richard Powers in uh, mm-hmm. a book called The Echo Maker. Right. The protagonist has a feeling that his sister is not his sister, that his dog is not his dog. I don't know if it's interesting or not that. That book also is published by FSG, so maybe some editor there has a Jones for this particular kind of <laughs> mental <Syndrome>. disorder. <laughs> In any case, um, Leo wonders if this, uh, the fact that this imposter has walked into his life is connected with, um, with his patient Harvey. Rima's wife had put him up to um, attempting to treat Harvey, who's a 26-year-old uh, presenting symptoms of uh, schizophrenia, uh, attempting to treat Harvey by kind of playing along with his delusion, which is that Harvey believes that he can control the weather, that he is a secret agent working on behalf of the Royal Academy of Meteorologists, which is a real group, and that uh, this academy is engaged in this uh, sort of epic, universal, existential struggle with a group called the uh, the 49 Quantum Fathers. Oh, that's right. The in the course of the book, uh, as uh, Leo unravels, he, too, uh, begins to believe that he's in contact with um, agents of this organization. And yeah. it's uh, sad and weird and thrilling and scary. Yeah. And, I mean, I think, I think what's interesting about her achievement in this book, um, which I think is really amazing, is that this genre of book generally tends to favor braininess. So you see these kind of intellectual pyrotechnics of the and the showiness and the, how thought out it is, but you don't actually have characters who are real characters that you care about and that you sort of have some general kind of involvement with. And so I think what's so interesting about this book is she takes from realistic fiction the idea of a character that you care about and a, you know, emotional situation that is real and pressing and adds to that this overlay of this kind of, you know, very sophisticated, paranoid, um, showy, postmodern theme. And it's the combination of those two things in this book that I think works so well. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I like both of you. I, I really liked this book. Um, okay, I'm going to lay out my complaint again about it right now to get it over with. I think it's about 40 pages too long, or I think it's a little too long. The end uh, feels like it loses some of its clarity and 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 I did feel also as I as I was reading the book I thought okay how is she going to get out of this that's going to be one right. of the crucial questions for this book and we can return to that that but I thought she gets out of it in in there there would have been more unsatisfying ways for her to get out of it it's not the most satisfying of endings but but I didn't mind it it seemed it seemed fine and this is a first novel and and the rest of it as you say it had this I think we do think of kind of typically postmodern fiction that plays with games as having a kind of 
braininess or a reserve or a coolness. And actually, there's an amazing and interesting moment in the book when the character, when Leo is thinking, he goes to Argentina and he's thinking about Borges. And um, he says something about how people always talk about Borges not having any warmth and how this irritates him because, of course, Borges does have warmth. And actually, in a way, there, there are all these – it's a wonderful moment. It's typical of many of the moments in the book where these little throwaway interior moments of the character thinking reveal something about the kind of aesthetic and mood and, and intentions of the book, um, which is to say there's a kind of very self-conscious attempt, I think, to kind of rescue – to kind of complicate that idea about postmodernism and to kind of say that postmodernism can have as much sentiment in it as, you know, so-called realistic fiction. One book that it, it reminded me of a little bit was um, Jonathan Safran Foer's um, second novel, Extremely Close and Incredibly Loud, if I'm remembering the Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. I, okay, I always get it wrong. So, um, you know, that this book, like that one, has illustrations and a kind of a character who doesn't quite understand the reality and is on a quest, a sort of quixotic quest. But that book actually is a postmodern book that's extremely sentimental in a lot of ways. And I thought Galchen here really got the balance totally right. Like she, she, you know, she, Leo's quest is one that doesn't seem merely cerebral and merely a, a vehicle for her game playing questions about reality versus Appearances, and I think that's partly because, because of these, because it's about a woman that he really loves, the loss of a woman that he really loves, and there's something really childish about it. But I wondered how, how do you think she does that? What for you was since you since we all have sort of a similar take in that regard. Well, one of the things she does, which is very interesting, is that she creates an ambiguity in this book mm-hmm. about the situation. Namely, is this just a book about a ma- falling out of love with someone you're married to? What does it mean to live with somebody who suddenly appears to be a stranger? And how well do we ever know those people in our lives? And that on some level within this book is um, the shadow book, which is a sort of realistic novel about that theme. About marriage. Yes. And And then on the other side of it is this other kind of, you know, more detective story, postmodern quest story with all of the fancy things she does. And I think that it's the ambiguity about what's really going on mm-hmm. you know and and all the way through the book she maintains that tension did she really disappear or not is this just a sort of um you know something going on in his head and some feeling of loss that he has that's just natural and existential or is it literally the case that there's this kind of thrilling story and i think the fact that she treads the line for so long in between those things is what holds the tension of the book mm-hmm uh, yeah, absolutely, and I, I think largely because the um, sort of the the structuring device of Leo's delusion speaks is perfectly evocative of kind of the alienation and estrangement that might be happening in anyone's kitchen at the moment. Yeah, well, I didn't feel that she held that for a long. She does hold these two possibilities up for a long time. That that maybe this is. A world in which Rima really has disappeared and been replaced by the simulacrum. But I would say about 100 pages into the book, I started to kind of know that, feel that I was supposed to know or or perhaps know too much that that wasn't what had happened, that, he, that evidence was accumulating to suggest that he was delusional in some right. way. And 
did you feel that too, or well, not? Or because I just felt like it's, yeah. There's other kinds of ambiguity that replace that first right. ambiguity the, for me. Right. But, I think you're right. right. First ambiguity kind of drops away, but then there's also the ambiguity of is he crazy or is he just responding to a realistic situation? Right. Well, you know, in this kind of sensitive yeah. way. And you know what I and, and you just articulated something that I was trying to articulate to myself was you know around page 100 and something I started to think oh no now he just seems delusional and is this really going to hold my attention <laughs> and, and I think maybe it's not because now I'm just in a crazy person's head and as as kind of. Um, you know, vigorously as she's writing that perspective, I'm I'm going to lose interest. But you're both like it is what you've both been saying. What what's ho- held my attention is that it did start to seem like um, this profound metaphor for estrangement within a marriage, without having to talk about estrangement within a marriage. And the other thing I thought it was really a metaphor for, and this was one reason I thought the book really worked, was that it became a metaphor also for grief or loss. There's a lot of discussion about death in the book and about how death makes you feel and the weird alienation from your surroundings and your the inability to take things for granted anymore. And that is, of course, part of the book. And, and the book is very crucially has a relationship to Argentina and the idea of the dirty war and the many people who were disappeared, quote unquote, in the dirty war, which feels like a really important word. Um, that that gets woven into Rivka's, um, I mean, into Rima's disappearance too. But yeah, it's a, I guess it's that it, it works. You don't have to only be interested in the that that high wire act of which is true, because at a certain point it becomes metaphorical. Right. I, I would say that it also works. You know, around page one hundred and twenty or whatever. Even as it's becoming clear that he's delusional, you're kind of rooting for him not to be and for this right. book in fact to be a science fiction novel because right, his right, voice totally. his voice is sort of so sympathetic and uh, he's uh, got this belief in logic and in reason that sort of wins that won me over mm-hmm. yeah and then there's that whole there's a wonderful oh, it's funny I was, so I was reading um, some of the Amazon reader reviews before we did this because I just was curious what you know kind of a group of readers and people seem to either love this book or hate the book there wasn't a lot of in between although there were a few people in between who felt that it had been slightly overpraised or whatever which we can we can grant that one might feel that way but the people who didn't love the book felt like it was just this tricksy games playing book with a guy who wasn't very sympathetic but maybe it's just that I was sort of a science fiction nerd growing up but I agreed I mean he had this weird <clears throat> over the top rationality that was that seemed also you know to borrow from the language of psychiatry like a kind of coping mechanism for this huge you felt that all of his language and his attempts to pinpoint things were this attempt to kind of create a, a tenuous bridge over this incredible chasm that he was experiencing somehow like some chasm of meaning had opened up and he didn't know how to survive it navigate. yeah i mean and i don't normally like this kind of book at all i think you know it, mm-hmm. i'm totally not inclined to like this kind of book but for some reason i just did feel like that i felt like he was just this interest in his voice and it reminds me a little bit of kafka and of in the sense of taking this crazy obviously like you know magical universe and describing it in this incredibly realistic, detailed way mm-hmm. that is so convincing and so, you know, and, and really using the arsenal of um, descriptive abilities of a straightforward realist novel in the service of this crazy, you know, twisted universe. And I think it's that combination that makes it his character so compelling. Yeah. 
It's funny, too. I think that's really important to say. There's a lot of very funny, small moments. I'm trying to find a passage that I really love. There are, there are some I'd like to do, but there's just a lot of... And I think that the language of psychiatry becomes really important, kind of idiomatic language in the book, too. Mm-hmm. There are moments where he's trying to deal with the fact that this stranger has, you know, the simulacrum is in his house with the dog, and he has to live with her, and he makes a list of intrusive thoughts that are disturbing him from sleep. This is on page 29. And um, he, he's been able, he's been un- unable to sleep next to the simulacrum. So he says, I lay myself down on the sofa, experiencing the unhappy deja vu of having lain myself down in just the same way, not so many hours earlier, expecting Rima's imminent arrival. I tried to rest, but although the phone did not ring, it was always ringing of late, intrusive thoughts rising as if carbonated disturbed me from sleep. And then there's this very sort of slightly eccentric list. A movie dimly recalled from childhood with a blind samurai who can't see that the man pursuing him is his double. John Donne meeting his wife's doppelganger in Paris and this portending his baby's death. Maupassant seeing his own doppelganger and it portending his own death. Rima asleep on my shoulder at the movies. A guff of ugly laughter. This is just a problem I'm trying to depersonalize, I told myself. Probably just some very normal problem dressed up as a strange one, you know. And that, I think that, that those different registers of language, the kind of slightly lyrical list-making and then th- that psychiatric, like, self-awareness that's a totally ir- – it's also, you know, you, we think of self-awareness as being correct, but it's like a great exercise in how self-awareness can be turned toward, one presumes by the end of the book, utter – misreading, misinterpretation. Right. Just as an aside, it seems worth mentioning in the context of the psychiatric language that the author is a medical doctor. Yeah. Trained as a psychiatrist. Oh, really? I was wondering what the what her training was. What did you think, you know, so as the book progresses, we get more and more involved and in, the narrator gets more and more involved in this quest that he's on to, he, he believes that he, as Troy was saying, he himself is now working for the Royal Society of Meteorologists. He tries to get a job with them. He thinks that's going to lead him to the real Rima. He suddenly finds Harvey, his former patient, who has disappeared and develops a relationship with Harvey. They're in a hotel room together. And then he finds this mysterious Dr. Zvi Galchen, who notably shares the author's name in some fashion. And they all end up having this kind of strange world together. They email each other, various things happen. um, Rima, the wife, ends up, well, the wife or the simulacrum, according according to the narrator, ends up coming to visit them, finds them in their hotel room and ends up having these interactions with all of them. If we are reading him as delusional, is this sort of like a beautiful mind? Are we supposed to, you know, I've, I kept thinking of the movie A Beautiful Mind. This is the one sort of unsatisfying part for me was I couldn't stop thinking of A Beautiful Mind where we realize that the Paul Bettany character is totally invented and <coughs> only in, you know, Russell Nash's, that his name, head. I don't know. How did you how did you read that section? How did I read that section? I will say that uh, instead of A Beautiful Mind, I thought my favorite double novel is uh, Despair, uh, Nabokov's Despair, yeah. which kind of achieves you know some of the same effects through much the same sort of control of tone. It's to- a much better thing to have in your mind than A Beautiful Mind. I kept trying to, <laughs> I kept trying to banish A Beautiful Mind from because I was like, this isn't totally fair to her novel that I can't stop seeing Paul Bettany. <laughs> right. um, again, this is why the it's. Uh, this mystery is particularly haunting because the book has no sort of real level of reality. You don't know if 
at what point he gets cracked. Is he, in fact, Leo Liebenstein in the first place? Does he have a wife? Right. Is oh, exactly. Is he a yeah. patient in an institution? All those possibilities are open, but uh, sort of gently suggested, so then you don't feel like you're getting elbowed in the ribs too often. Yeah. I liked that. I liked that. I think that's part of what, what made it work for me is that toward the end, I was thought, oh, he might not have a wife at all. Right, he might be in an, but 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 the book holds off on answering any of those things for you, which is satisfying. And there's actually another moment that I thought was again, it's sort of the accumulation for me of these small things that made the book work. But there's a moment where he, the simulacrum insists, of course, that she is Rima, and he goes and finds Rima's real mother, Magda, in Buenos Aires, and he actually lives with her for a while and pretends that he's a friend of Rima's rather than her husband, which leads to a lot of sort of unintentional comedy where she's complaining about the husband and, right. you know, we don't know if that was him or some right. other husband or, you know, just the, the, the sort of multiplicity of interpretive possibilities is, is really great. But so, um, But at one point, Magda says... He's become obsessed with this name Anatole because someone said the name Anatole um, or Anatole as they later start to pronounce it. And uh, he thinks Anatole is Rima's secret lover. So a lot of the book, too, is about obsession and potential for jealousy and misinterpretation in that form. And Magda says to him, oh, you know, no, Anatole was was Rima's father and he he was disappeared. And. You think, as a reader, I thought, oh, okay, this is going to become this really important part of the book, and it's going to have some big resonance. And, but then the next turn is that he tells Rima, he tells Rima slash the simulacrum this, and she says, oh, no, he just left her. She's always trying to make her grief extraordinary when really it's ordinary. And I just thought that, that sort of sustaining of uncertainty. So there's also not just he who is unsure of the world around him, but other people are are lying manipulating, all the time. Manipulating. Or just right, different you know. views of the truth. Yeah. I also think one thing I love about the book is that is just what you're talking about, that quality. When he goes down to see Magda, um, Rima's mother, there's a quality of, you know, is he going to get to the bottom of this mystery? Right. So here's this person that you know, you think you know, you're married to, but actually you don't know at all. Maybe she had a previous husband, maybe she had. And the fact that he never gets that mystery... He never knows who she is. Each moment where you think, oh, this, like what you just said, each moment where you think this is the answer to the mystery, there is no answer, which is in of itself to me like what makes this book, you know, and I, and I think it's worth saying part of what's compelling about this book is its sheer intelligence and, yeah. and just the amazing analytical capacity and way of looking insight into the human condition that we see in this book. And one of the things that she's talking about is – you know, is that there is no mystery. There is no moment where you know the other person. You can know their mother, you can know their father, but there's always, you know, it's as if there's a whole other secret past that you'll never get a hold of. And through the mood Mm. of the book, she captures that feeling. So it's not literal, none of it's literal, this pursuit of the mystery, but it's that she captures that feeling of, you know, never knowing somebody that I think is just really true. You know, talking about it is making me like the end of the book much more. Um, and maybe it's worth talking about the end of the book for a little bit. And then I know, Katie, there's a question that, that about gender that you want to get to that I think we should. But so the end of the book, um, does someone want to explain? I mean, I can take a little stab. But the end of the book, so, you know, it's this kind of book where you keep wondering, how is she going to get out of it? How is she going to write her way out of it? And they've kind of, she's brought things sort of to a boil in this confrontation in, in Patagonia and 
Rima, the simulacrum is there, and she's clearly trying to persuade him, coming up with ways of persuading him just to come back to her in New York. And one's sympathies, my sympathies as a reader at this point were, to, you know, my inclination was to believe that this was really Rima and that he's suffering from actual psychological you know, destabilization of some kind, and she's decided to go along with his um, his fantasy so that she can get him back. But so you wonder what's going to happen, and you know what what Gal Chen does is she she posits a kind of potential world, a sort of future. She doesn't actually bring us an end; she brings us a speculative end that no, that doesn't. It could be the end, but it could not be the end, right? And I'll just read a, a brief... It's written in that strange it's written, tense. Right, it's... Like, future possible. Future possible, um, yeah. yeah, which has a technical name that I'm forgetting, like the future... Yeah. Uh, but here, I'll write, I'll read a little... Well, parts of it are in the future, and then parts of it are in this... You know, we might do this. Um, well, he stipulates something. Let's say that I agreed to return and that she agreed to return with me. We arrive. I imagine the apartment will smell musty and she'll open the windows and cold blasts will compete with one another through the length of the space. The curtains will billow. The thin dog, who will return her, will retreat to the simulacrum's lap for warmth. An old newspaper will be out on the coffee table as if still important. Something circled in red pen, etc., etc. And then, you know, he says, in many ways, I'll realize... This is 2.30, starts on 2.36, and I'm skipping forward to 2.38. In many ways, I'll realize this alternate life of mine will be a small but fitting memorial to my life with Rima. And it begins to be a replacement life, like a life that works, you know, um, a life that almost is as good as the life that he imagined with Rima. And then he, he suggests that one day something will happen that will interrupt it, and he will be kind of thrown back into remembering Rima and he'll have to kind of pursue her once more. I, th- I think that's how I read the very end. But it's just... Well, a and f- also that important line, perhaps we'll eventually find ourselves wholly making believe as if she is the original Rima, as if nothing had happened. Right. This is perhaps what we were meant to do, be partners in solving a poorly defined crime. Yeah. And it's just really, you know, it's very interesting because then it also becomes this this one little section also becomes a kind of meditation on true love and the idea that, you know, you might have a true love, but then you have this other love and you you build that into something, the power. I don't know, it becomes, it sort of expands in all these ways, but it's also not an actual ending. And at first I thought, oh, this is how she had to get out of it. But now as we talk about it, I start to think that's sort of the end that had to be there all along. What did you think of it, Troy? Does this book believe in... In true love, if the way of reading it is that <laughs> Leo's feeling that his wife is an imposter is uh, an extension of or a metaphor for his you know, realizing that his feelings toward her have changed, then right. this ending kind of seems like it's about sort of like accommodating himself to that. Contingencies. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's my just – I was just bringing that into the end. for. It's much more about contingent, the contingency of love, which is actually a word she uses at one yeah. point, where she talks about, like, I know love is contingent and made up of a set of contingencies. Yeah, that would be, I think, a more accurate thing. Right. It makes me think of this uh, Liz Fair lyric about how uh, love is nothing, 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 like they say, and you've got to get up and work the people every day. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think what I like, I really like this ending mm. because I do think this is where she's doing some of the work of, of you know, some of the kind of that philosophical work that I think is really interesting about this book where, just as you're saying, she's saying this is what relationships are. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're part of a crime. We're complicit in this crime. We're just pretending that everything is normal and everything's not normal. We're just going through the motions and everything. We're not, you know, and... And it's a poorly it's just, defined crime. You can't right. even tell if and it is a crime. And, and what's, right. what's very restrained, and the way she does it, I think, is quite beautiful, is that there's an ambiguity about, is this just a normal marriage? Is this what marriage is? Mm-hmm. You know, which is to say the inhabiting of a slightly compromised, more contented version of reality. Or is this, you know, this pathological situation, you know, right. such as... We've now, you know, with this right. simulacrum where he's trying to pretend that he's in a marriage and he's not. Right. And that ambiguity, which just carries all the way through. And I think that the, I found, I think the ending is quite elegant mm-hmm. um, as a way of getting, of resolving the book. And I also think it sort of casts, it makes important and draws out that idea of, you know, this being about relationships mm-hmm. and it not being a postmodern trickery novel exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think she emphasizes that with this ending. Yeah. Because you really can read the entire book as a metaphor that way, that the simulacrum, the presence of the simulacrum is really just a metaphor for falling slightly out of love, right? And that the the thing that you thought was there suddenly doesn't seem to be there anymore, but it looks like it and it seems like it and it's almost it. And so what was, what is the difference? And, what? and it might even not even be falling out of love, but right. the ordinariness of life. Right, right, right. That's a better a way of putting how, it. Right. Um, somewhere earlier on, she talks about the sort of beautiful ordinariness of their life. And I think it's sort of about that feeling of just people changing, which is natural. And it doesn't, I mean, lots of people who consider themselves married and still in love will find themselves in this condition where one is changed, right. the other has changed. You know, there are all kinds of things like this. That's a better way of putting it right now, falling out of love. More of a what, sort of... But actually complicating that very notion somehow a little bit. Well, there's a there's a really interesting passage, too, toward the end where suddenly he reveals that... Because for a long time you think that he's this incredibly devoted, older husband who's a little bit jealously paranoid about his younger wife and the potentials, the potential for kind of, you know, dalliance that is around her all the time in a way that there isn't so much for him. You, you take it to be... But then later in the book, there is this long passage where he talks about how he's taken to working late in his office and reading magazines there rather than going home. And you suddenly, again, I mean, you realize your own assumptions as a reader, everything you've been taking, you know, are built upon these very slight premises that have to do with what someone chose to reveal to you so far in the book. Good. And that, yeah, I agree with you totally. Like that question of who's withdrawing becomes incredibly confusing. Yeah. What did you think of the illustration? There are a series of illustrations in the book. What did you think of the, the presence of those? I thought that they were too cute. Too cute. And there's even a photograph, which is uh-huh. a fake photograph of Sveik Alchin and his family. Right. To be clear, there, there's, what, four or five illustrations here. There's a photograph. There's a, a one diagram meant to uh, illustrate an idea about the, uh, the Doppler, Doppler effect. effect. And uh, a couple weather maps. This is, like, familiar... Um, Kind of familiar postmodern apparatus like the uh, the postal horn and the crying of Lot Forty Nine, right. and I thought it was sort of distracting and too cute, and that mm-hmm. it didn't add very much. You know, I feel speaking of the crying of Lot Forty Nine, I was also sort of distracted and irked by the fact that the um, the weathermen uh, opposing the Royal Academy of Meteorologists are the Forty Nine Quantum Fathers, and yeah, you know, we that's understand a good point. It's, it's sort of like quest novel, and there's uh, a question about reality and, deli- and reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. At least the, the the sort of the Borges stuff was um, 
a little better integrated. Yeah, the pinch and stuff, and it got the novel got called pinchinesque a number of times, which I'm not sure it actually felt totally pinchinesque. I think it to me felt more like Nabokov or or Borges. But that's a good point about the 49. I hadn't even thought about that. There's a kind of cuteness there. What did you think of the illustrations, Katie? Yeah, I felt I, I didn't need the illustrations. Yeah. But, you know, they didn't bother me particularly. But I definitely, especially the photograph seemed striking to me. Because I don't why know do why. you think she put them in? I mean, I guess why? Simply out of fashion? It is a fashionable device. I mean, I'm trying Dolly. to think, is there an argument? Is an, you know, if we had written this book, is there an argument we could make for their presence uh, as opposed to... I mean, is, is there anything about them... I guess the, the photograph is a little ghostly uh, in yeah. its way, but... It, uh, it does what, create... It is a little ghostly. Right. Because is he dead? Is he alive? Does he exist? Is he... It's so rooted in a particular time instead of styles, too. Which... Right. Yeah. It's it's kind of like... It's a little haunting in the same way that, like, finding somebody else's Polaroid on the street right. is. Right, um, I guess, like, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I don't even know if I was going to say anything worthwhile. You go ahead. Well, I was just thinking, okay, so if this were my book, what you know, what, what could we, what ca- case could you make for them? Because I, you know, I sort of thought, hmm, these are a little cute too. I feel I'm susceptible to this particular form of cuteness. But as I think about it, I feel like a lot of the book was about, and I think this way the book is really timely. In a certain way, the book is about complicating our our faith and rationality and information, which I feel is a kind of which I feel just separately from the book is one of our kind of profound faiths of our ages. You know, information is everything or information adds up to meaning. And so it it did seem that having illustrations, especially these scientific illustrations, did become a way that are then used in such a whimsical manner helped kind of add to that overall feeling of, you know. But like you, I think I found them a little... A little cute. Well, she doesn't need them. She doesn't need them. She like doesn't need them. It works them. without She's too good for them. Yeah. She's too good for them. <laughs> See, if she just took them out, and this is not true of, like, all but these kind of books that right. have illustrations, but if you just took them out, the book would be fine on its own. Should we talk about the fact that this is a novel written by a woman? And, Katie, I know you had thoughts about that. Do you yeah, want to I mean, jump in there? I think it's just because it's interesting because... Um, it's a very unusual kind of book that this genre, you know, which we pinch in or Don DeLillo or however we think of it, you know, David Foster Wallace, mm-hmm. um, this kind of very high concept, showy postmodernism is very rarely taken on by women. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's it's interesting just that she that this is the book, you know, this was her first novel. Um, and I also think it's interesting because the way in which she tempers it and makes it more human to me is a kind of, you know, she does take a sort of traditionally male kind of writing and actually open it up in a way that I think is really interesting and kind of radical when you look at this Mm. type of book. Mm -hmm. Mm. Troy, did you have any thoughts about that? What she said. Um, (laughs) But I also get the the other book of this type is... um, What's the name of the thing by Marissa Pessel? Marissa Pessel... um, Yes. Special topics in calamity physics. Right. Yeah. And even the, uh, even there's sort of a resonance between the two titles, even isn't there? Well, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at any rate, yeah, it, it does seem interesting that it's it it seems newsworthy when when a, a young woman writes um, a book that's uh, you know of this kind of subgenre that's 
And I think that book was for, le- much less successful than this well, one. Well, you know, it's, and Katie and I were talking about this before we started talking here in the book club, but, you know, The Pestle did get a lot of attention. It was put on the front page of The Times, and, and I think that book was much less successful. It was trying to be very Nabokovian. I think this book is much more successfully Nabokovian in its use of language on a very local level. Like even that quote that you read at the, from the very beginning, Troy, when she says, when he uses, she uses the word brashness, you know, the brash, she's sort of, she's talking about the scent of Rima's shampoo, and then she says, through the brashness, and that's such an interesting, slightly strained use of the word, but totally perfect and, and reminded me of Nabokov, um, as did all the shadow shadow figures, um, I thought, not only of despair, but of um, Lolita, actually. There's a lot of kind of sense of, like, shadow, shadow this pursuing somebody without quite knowing what you're pursuing right, or why right, right. you're pursuing them or yeah, and in and, love and obsession and yeah. you know and as with Humbert Humbert this this kind of uh, unreliable narrator with yes. a exactly. fairly suave voice exactly yeah at least initially but you know it's it does seem notable that a woman but I, we also Katie and I were saying that it felt like this book didn't get quite as much attention as it might have had actually a young man written it paradoxically even though it's more noteworthy you would think, because there are fewer novels like this written by young women as their first novels. Um, there was sort of, paradoxically, it felt like it got a little less love from from the kind of quarters of publishing. Although, you know, it's funny, because you read on Amazon, you see that people definitely perceive this book as being heavily promoted and pushed and praised, so maybe that's not so true. But Well, but I think that's compared to most first novels, right. maybe. But right. I think... You're right that if this, I think if this book were written by man, it would have a different, there would have been a different response. It would have been like, here's a new talent on the level of right. Jonathan Safran for, you know, yeah. all these other people, which I think she is. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just, there's just a slightly different response because of that. Yeah. That seems fair to me. I think that's, I think that's true. It, it does seem to me to be the case. Do you think it, uh, or is it even appropriate to ask if the sort of fact of her womanhood uh, sort of fundamentally shapes her approach to this kind of material? Sort of, you know, uh, I'm thinking of, for instance, Nabokov talking about how in Jane Austen all of her sentences button to the left. <laughs> I've never heard that quote. That's so fabulous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I that's such an ingenious, ingenious way of saying something provocative that I don't think I agree with. But <laughs> I still love the sentence. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, here's it's two tr- questions. It's very yeah. delicate. It's hard to talk about. Go ahead, Katie. And no, also. go. Well, I mean, I asked myself that exact question because I wondered, oh, you know, like one way of putting it would be to say, well, the reason this feels like it has more warmth and heart is because a woman wrote it. But I, I kind of hate that type of sim- of categorization which seems very simplistic to me like why that like Jonathan Safran Foer's book which I brought up before is incredibly full of feeling right so that that seems but one thing and and I'll just ask this and this is sort of a separate question is could she only write this book with a male narrator that was a question I asked myself a lot like could she could she have written a book like this with a female narrator or did she have to, you know, because it's, it's very striking that it's a book by a woman, but the narrator is male. The Pestle, I guess, has a female narrator. Um, right. Anyway. If, I don't know. If this cut, I was thinking for like a, a thing that I was writing about, uh, about the yellow wallpaper, right? Mm-hmm. About uh, mm-hmm. Charlotte, Charlotte Bergens-Gilman. Mm-hmm. With a female narrator, this book becomes something more of that ilk, kind of about. Hysteria. Yeah. 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 Hysteria right. and powerlessness and mm-hmm. it's kind of like. Yeah, you're right. Gaslighting. Right, and, and if she were jealous, as this character was, it would it would seem more right like 
that jealousy would be construed very differently. Katie, you want to say something? I guess I think that it's wrong to see this book as being like this postmodern book with more heart. I don't right. really get right, that right, it right. has more heart necessarily. Right, right. I think what's its preoccupations and interests are it does bring some inter- some different level of interest and understanding and analysis of relationships that we associate with women's writing. You know, and the interior of relationships imported into um, this kind of book. Also, it's more interested in psychology. You know, yeah. it's more interested in the question of why people act the way they act and what happens in, in relationships and all of that. So it's very unusual for a book to be both this kind of postmodern type book and also interested in the interior to the extent that she's interested in the interior. And I think it's the combination of the two that makes That's it incredibly really well. interesting. And I do think... I mean, I really feel uncomfortable with, like, there's a woman kind of writing and a male kind of writing. Yeah. I just think that's um, sort of a dangerous way to think. But, you know, if we look at something like Virginia Woolf's scheme in A Room of One's Own, there is a way in which she is taking the potentials and capabilities of a certain traditionally women's writing and combining it um, with something else. And that's what makes it kind of, to me, that's what is sort of electric and interesting about this book in a way that it wouldn't be if it was just the sort of paranoid fantasy or just a kind of, you know, Murakami-like sort of, you know, which I also like, but not, you know, it, it's less limited than that. I think know, that's part genre. yeah, I think that's part of why I keep going back to Lolita as a, you know, precursor for the book, because Lolita, I mean, does what you were describing too. Like it has a pre, mm-hmm. pre it's preoccupied with patterns and appearances and reality and deconstructing those things on some level, but it is also preoccupied with the characters interior lives, like how they perceive the world and what that is and, and the dilemma that Humbert Humbert finds himself in. And you're right. It's simplistic to say, you know, and also, I mean, I think one thing where, we're describing postmodernism and fiction uh, along a very particular set of terms, and there are other ways of thinking of postmodernism, too. Right. Um, That's what the, the question I was going to ask is that, and again, these, making these distinctions between right. modernism and high modernism and postmodernism has uh, limited utility. But is it possible that this, is, in fact, is not a postmodern novel, that it is a novel that uses those kind of devices to yeah. an, the ends of... Of what? Like, how would you, how else to characterize this generically? I think that's a great question because that's that's yeah that's what I was just trying to get at less eloquently is you know right it has this toolbox that we've become familiar with of the photographs and illustrations and the identity games and the using portions yeah, of her same. own name the author's name but but that's a great question right how else might we characterize it using those labels I don't know Katie. Did, I feel like I have to think about that. No, for a but I while. do believe. I think yeah. Troy's right. I mean, I don't think it is that kind of book ultimately, in the way that when we endlessly talk about David Foster Wallace and this kind of search for the human, you know, this like digging through, or this uh-huh. is just me in my unsophisticated <laughs> way, digging through for something to like care about. This book isn't that. It really isn't. It's something else. I mean, I think you're right. She is using those tools, but I think that there's there's something that she's after that's different from that. And I guess I would think about it in terms of James Woods talking about hysterical realism, which mm. is a little bit related, and talking about a certain kind of showy writing that basically bulldozes over the characters. And what she's doing here, she really does care about her characters. She really does want to create a character that we believe that is real, that lives on the page. 
and that's not the goal of of that right. kind of writing that we're talking about yeah. exactly. Though you know, one thing that does seem postmodern to use that label is that acceptance of contingency as a as a sort of starting point or as a premise of our lives. That then there is this key passage that I wish I could find right now where she talks about the character kind of says that that he's accepting that his life is a series of contingencies. But she does something different with that, which is she doesn't extrapolate from that a kind of pointlessness to everything or a lack of central meaning. I mean, I think that's what the, the more I think about the end, the more I think that's what the end is doing. The end is saying, well, actually, in the face of contingency, you can use your will to create something. I think one thing I liked about the book is that it forces you to complicate, it forces you back to those terms, forces you back to think about those terms and how they are partially accurate and not completely accurate. Because I feel that your question is really important, Troy, that there is something maybe not quite, maybe it's post-postmodern. Or whatever comes after that. Yeah. Maybe this is the the point at which to make a plea to listeners to, to email us if they come up with any good ideas. Yeah. <laughs> what can we call this book and what do you think? That would be fabulous. We should actually bring this to a close, but are there any last points that you would like to make, Troy or Katie, or any passage you would like to end on? I would like to just come back to the, uh, for the sake of being circular, to come back to the point that you made earlier, is that this is a handsome object. Uh, it's, it's a good <laughs> book to hold. It, it might be worth seeking out in hardcover. Yeah, it's just out in paperback now, but the, the hardcover is nice. And it, it sort of has a very nice typeface. It's, I was saying to Katie and Troy, it's easy to travel with. You can sort of stick it in your carry-on. It doesn't take up too much space, unlike Infinite Jest. <laughs> Um, well, and it's weirdly like a page turner. It is it a page is a turner. Book you could read on an airplane. I, re- I did read it on really an airplane. Actually, want to re- you really want to get through and read the story, which yeah. I think right. is another part of its achievement as this kind of yeah. book that you actually care about the story and you're not just sort of right. It is a detective um, story. It, it is. is. Yeah. yeah. Let's just call it that. Yes, and a story it's about just, new perceptions. F- like I read it on airplane, and I was finishing it as we were landing and seeing all of Brooklyn from this on-high perspective. And I thought that's sort of curiously analogous to what she's done in the book—is sort of taking her perspective and turned it upside down. And so, great. Well, thank you for joining us for this edition of the Audio Book Club. We will be back soon, and we hope you will join us then. If you'd like to get an early start on the next book club selection, pick up copies of the short stories The Swimmer by John Cheever and A Good Man is Hard to Find by Flannery O'Connor. And a note to Audible.com listeners, an audio version of The Swimmer is available in a collection called Essential Cheever. So listen for our discussion of The Swimmer and A Good Man is Hard to Find coming to the podcast on June 18th.